This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome to The Guardian Long Read, showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture, politics, and new thinking. For the text version of this and all our long reads, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. The Many Meanings of Moss by Nikita Azad On the cusp of winter 2021, I went for a walk in the woods near my house in Oxford. By a bench that overlooks the city, I happened upon a moss-covered log that glistened green under the overcast sky. The moss's leaves were as tiny and intricate as the finest embroidery, and as thin as cling film. I brushed my fingertips over the feathery bed in awe of its minuteness and complexity, before taking a dozen photographs. When was the last time I had touched moss? When was the first? I remember trees, rivers, mountains, but not moss. But that day, I felt as if moss summoned me to pay attention to its rigour and beauty amid its great arboreal cousins. Or rather, moss represented something for me. I'd been thinking about touch, about how out of touch with nature I am. I live in a city that has many parks and meadows, but I don't touch nature enough. Rather, I see it. The ornamental birches, the canal, the roses on the hedgerows. In summertime, I'll swim with friends or sunbathe and roll in sand and grass. But once we are back in our sanitized homes, I continue to live out of touch. I seek nature in small, appropriate, hygienic doses. Winter is the only true season of touching. In winters, no matter how efficiently you dress up, a raindrop will find you. Fogs will enshroud you and leave their wetness on your face. Dry, cold air will crack your lips. As you inhale, mist will touch your nostrils and the inside of your throat. You will feel winter's touch on the backs of your ears. Winter's physicality reaches everywhere. But moss works the hardest in winters, 
Over every log, rock and crevice, it grows and glows. Over the course of that winter, I touched mosses everywhere in the city, on footpaths and walls, on the barks of willows, on metal-based drain covers, on tombstones, on the roofs of houseboats, on abandoned bicycles under the railway bridge. Moss likes to grow everywhere as long as there's enough shade and moisture. A non-vascular plant, it lacks an elaborate root and shoot anatomy. It has no roots to speak of. Mosses absorb water and nutrients from their one-celled leaves, which are uniquely designed to hold water up to 30 times their own weight. In winter, if you've ever paused to gaze at a moss bed and touch its surface, you'll feel as if you've touched a wet sponge. You'll also realize that while a moss bed may feel soft at first touch, it is a multi-textured world down there. As I carefully brush the backs of my fingers against the moss beds, tiny stalk-like beings tickle me. Shutting out of moss leaves, these stalks are known as sporophytes. Each sporophyte contains a capsule of spores at its outermost end. As wind and water carry these spores away from their source beds, mosses multiply. The sporophytes grow considerably taller than the bed to allow the spores to travel far and start a new commune, a new family. One of the most common mosses in urban settlements is Tatula moralis, wall screw moss. It was the first one I noticed, like most beginners do. One day, under a bright blue after-rain sky, I observed that the sporophyte capsules of a wall screw moss bed growing on a brick fence, had swelled to almost three times their usual size. It astonished me, and I thought it might be another stage in their development that I hadn't read about yet. Down on my knees at eye level with the bed, I reached out with a fingertip towards a sporophyte, but my hand stopped itself midway. It took a while for my eyes to adjust, but I realized that the capsules had not swelled at all. Each sporophyte was merely holding a tiny water droplet around itself, like a miniature water balloon or a pregnant belly. Many minutes had gone by. It started raining again, and more water fell and seeped into the moss bed. I remembered to go about my day, which seemed a bit absurd, if not insignificant in front of a moss bed. This then is the first lesson that moss taught me. You can touch time. Not our human time, not even mammal time, but earth time. Hours later, when I returned from my chores in the city, the sporophytes were still there, still holding water. Often, it can take 25 years for a moss layer to put on one inch. But moss has been around for at least 350 million years, being one of the first species to make the journey from water to dry land. Moss is our elder relative, as Robin Wall Kimmerer reminds us in Gathering Moss. It is a species that shares our cities and apartments, a witness to human time and its catastrophic speed. 
If only touching moss were enough to let us experience moss time. Aristotle claimed that touch is the most universal sense. Lately, I've come to believe that touching nature may be the most efficient means of reconnecting with it. Several studies argue that activities that involve touching non-human entities with our bodies, walking barefoot or swimming, for instance, might help us nurture affective and ethical relationships with the non-human world. The phenomenologist Maurice Merleau-Ponty spent his life thinking and writing about the question of human perception. For him, it was through the body's perception and proprioception that we have come to know the world. While sight is important here, for it is through sight that we tell, in relation to our bodies, whether an object is far or near, large or small. Touch is equally, if not more, important. Touch reorients us to the fundamental condition of being, to the inevitability of others, human and non-human. In touching, we are most vulnerable because we are always also being touched back. The analogy that Merleau-Ponty uses in his posthumously published work, The Visible and the Invisible from 1964, is this. When my one hand touches the other, which one is doing the touching, and which one is being touched. We have eyelids. We can pinch our noses and shut our ears. But there are no natural skin covers. We cannot turn off our sense of touch. To be a human in the world is to be tactile, to always be touching and touched with every single pore of our bodies. The idea that touching nature could bridge interspecies borders makes sense intuitively. And is there any being in the plant kingdom that embodies touch more than moss and its family? The bryophytes? Moss is touch. It doesn't poke the skin of the being it touches. And it takes practically nothing from the host it is in contact with. Moss is no parasite. Yet it softens trees, prevents soil erosion, and shelters animals too small for us to notice. It is continuously in touch with Earth and all its beings, including us. Inside a rainforest and on the city pavement, moss beckons us. In the 900-year history of Oxford University, my current home, Moss's touch has enchanted many people. But, as the historian Mark Lawley notes, a separate study of Mosses in Britain did not begin until the late 17th century. One of the key figures who recorded the diversity of Mosses in Britain in painstaking detail was Johann Jakob Delenius, a German botanist. Delenius studied medicine while maintaining a strong interest in botany at the University of Gießen, where he wrote his first major work, Catalogue of Plants Originating Naturally Around Gießen, in 1718. In it, he identified several mosses and fungi under the heading Cryptogams. 
denoting plants that reproduce via spores, also known as the lower plants. Perhaps only a handful of botanists at the time would have bothered spending their days with their hands, touching the ground that other people walk on and animals relieve themselves on. But Delenius did, and his work impressed William Sherard, a leading English botanist. Sherard had recently acquired a huge collection of plants from Smyrna, present-day Izmir in Turkey, and had been searching for somebody to help organise it. He offered Delenius a job at his garden in Eltham, just outside London. And in 1721, Delenius migrated to Britain to work on Sherard's plant collection, The Mosses of Britain, and a Pinax, an illustrated catalogue of Britain's plants. For the first seven years of his time in Britain, Delenius lived between Eltham and his own lodgings in London. In 1724, he produced his first book in Britain, the third edition of Synopsis Methodica Sterpium Britannicarum. In the second edition, published in 1696, Ray had identified 80 types of mosses, to which Delenius added, according to George Claridge Druce's account, 40 types of fungi, more than 150 types of mosses, and 200-plus seed plants. Delenius divided cryptogams into fungi and mazai, excluding ferns and equisitums. For perhaps the first time, somebody had paid meticulous and singular attention to the lower plants. It fascinated me to imagine an 18th-century gentleman spending hours and years touching and collecting the mosses of Britain. We don't know much about Delenius's inner life, but one can glean from his letters that he loved mosses and liked his life in their company. His life among English people? Not so much. After three years of exacting work, his edition of Ray's synopsis was published, but it did not bear his name. His publishers and Sherard feared that the people of Britain would not appreciate the name of a foreigner on a book about the mosses of their land. In a letter to Richard Richardson, another leading English botanist and a colleague, Delenius announced the publication of his anonymous synopsis and regretted that he didn't have the opportunity to dedicate the book to Richardson publicly. Despite this omission, he wanted Richardson to convince Sherard to let him work on his dream, The History of Mosses. He wrote, I mean The History of Mosses, if I could find the time to finish it. Would you please persuade him to let me have one day in a week for this purpose? It wouldn't be until 1732 that Delenius could find that one day a week he needed to write his history. While Delenius enjoyed his work on the Pinax, his true passion lay with the lower plants. For about four years, he worked on Sherard's Pinax, while hoping that one day he'd be free to devote himself to the moss. When Sherard died in 1728, Delenius's fate changed overnight. Sherard left his books and plants to Delenius, and a considerable amount of money to Oxford University to be used towards the maintenance of a professorship of botany. In his will, he appointed Delenius as the first such Sherardian professor. In 1728, 
Delenius moved to Oxford, where he lived until his death. Here, James Sherard, the younger brother of his former patron, who behaved rather contemptuously towards Delenius, asked him to stop working on the mosses and the pinax, coercing him instead into writing a book on the garden at Eltham, Hortus Elthamensis, in 1732, for which Delenius endured significant financial loss. After Hortus, Delenius pledged his career and life to the study of mosses and in 1741, he published Historia Muscorum, or History of Mosses, in painstaking detail, over 576 pages, and in 85 illustrated plates, the book described 661 taxa of lower plants, including mosses, fungi, lichens, algae, liverworts, hornworts, and lycopods. He divided the mosses into six genera, neum, hypnum, polytrichum, brinum, sphagnum, and lycopodium, classifications that are useful today. But the book, his life's mission, did not fare well in the market. Soon, he started writing an abridged version that he thought people might want to buy at a reduced price, but time had bested him. His Italian contemporary, Pierre Antonio Michelli, had already written a detailed and genre-defining book on the cryptogams more than a decade before. In 1747, Delenius died of a stroke in his home in Oxford. The abridged version of the history of mosses unpublished. The saddest part of Delenius's story is that even today, his contribution is grouped under continental botanists in the history of British bryology. He is neither celebrated in Germany, his homeland, nor in England, where he lived and is buried. His was a migrant's fate. I felt an immediate affinity with Delenius, a stranger who'd become a friend to me. During my walks along the Thames, I kept his stunning illustrations to hand and learned to differentiate Polytrichum from Neum in his company. I'd always enjoyed gazing at trees and listening to the woodland winds, but it takes an intentional reorientation of the mind and the senses to attend to moss. Moss doesn't leap at you. It doesn't arrest you like a pine's needles or an oak's arms. Even when it appears marvellous, it doesn't sustain your interest long enough to observe its minutiae. I wondered why a person such as Delenius, a rather unwelcome immigrant, poured all his energy and hope into plants we tend to overlook? As a historian, I'm tempted to list reasons. The rise of the scientific worldview, colonialism, the impulse to taxonomize the world of plants and peoples, the establishment of a botanical garden in Giessen in 1609. And all this might well be correct, but still, why mosses? Why this man? The archive is never complete. 
Thanks for listening to The Guardian Long Read. We'll be back after this. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The audio long read is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash audiolongread today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash audiolongread. Welcome back to The Guardian Long Read. I grew up in a rain-drenched town in Punjab, India, where most months of the year I waded through mud and blocked rainwater to reach the corner shop of my neighbourhood. During monsoon, while the heavens poured and thundered, I'd play catch with my friends in the community park. I remember slipping over moss-covered rocks. I remember our bruised hips. We'd slip over Kai twice, sometimes three times in one game. In Punjabi, Kai doesn't exactly mean moss. We don't taxonomize lower plants into one category, like bryophytes, based on their method of reproduction. The ancient texts of Ayurveda a traditional healing system of North India, such as Sushrut Sahita and Charka Sahita, classify plants into different categories based on their shape, texture, appearance, medicinal properties and habitats. Any plant growth, especially near the ground, that makes you slip, fall or both is kai. The phrase that we use to refer to algae Lichen or a slippery moss over a rock is The phrase has two meanings, at least. Roughly, it means moss is frozen over the rock or moss is birthed by the rock. The rock is to moss what the soil is to a tree. I don't mean to romanticize things, 
But I suspect the business of scraping and selling moss will never take off in Punjab. In the UK, however, moss is used ornamentally in homes, airports, and hotels. Sphagnum moss, also known as peat or bog moss, is used to increase the productivity of gardens. Its habitats are home to rare wildlife and carbon reserves, but its use in horticulture is colossal. I wonder if, in addition to the labyrinth of a world political economy in which Punjab has mostly been a site of agricultural experimentation and extraction, rather than consumption, language has had a role to play in these historically different approaches to moss. In English, moss carpets a garden. Built into the language is the idea of moss as decoration, moss as a beautiful addition to nature. Carpet originates from the Latin carpere, which means to pull to pieces. To carpet an object is to pull and cover, cover and pull, the two actions deciding the fate of moss. In the centuries that followed Delenius, Moss was pulled from all over the world to cover other worlds. In the name of science and civilization, colonizers extracted and exploited indigenous peoples and foreign lands and ecosystems. Historians of science, such as Patricia Farah and Zahir Barber, have demonstrated that botanical expeditions of English and European scientists, such as Joseph Banks, helped consolidate Britain's imperial power. In accompanying colonial officials on expeditions around the globe, botanists acquired economically and culturally pertinent botanical and agricultural knowledge through their practices of collection in various parts of the world, including India. In the 1780s, the third Sharadian professor of botany at Oxford, John Sibthorpe, travelled to Greece and present-day Turkey to observe and collect lichens. In April 1795, Sibthorpe went to Cardamula, present-day Cardamili, in Greece. Remarking on his journey, he wrote, The nature of man seemed here to recover its erect form. We no longer observe the civility of mind and body, which distinguishes the Greeks subjugated by the Turks. This was the era of colonialism and orientalism. Sharadian professors of botany were no exception. Modern botany and its near-global dominance owes a considerable debt to opportunities provided by colonialism. That the scientific collection or extraction of plants and the subjugation of peoples occurred simultaneously means that the colonizers touched everybody. It was in 1744, just a couple of years before Delenius's death, that Robert Clive first touched India, arguably defining the course of British colonialism in the subcontinent. By 1794, the year Sibthorpe wrote his Flora Oxiniuses, the most valuable historical account of the flora of Oxfordshire we have today, the East India Company had firmly established itself in India. The modern history of touching moss is one of elitism, colonialism and racism. When I touch moss on the ancient walls, cobblestone streets and gated colleges of Oxford, 
I realize touching moss has never been a question of intent, but one of access. In 19th century Britain, there were many working class botanists, men and women, who taught themselves botany by memorizing the Latin names of plants in pubs after long and taxing work hours. But the idea of doing botany in a public house was utterly disgraceful and horrifying to the elite classes. While artisan botany became widespread in Manchester and Lancashire, it didn't take off amid the spires of Oxford. In Britain's colonies, colonialism turned touch into a privilege. While colonizers employed indigenous peoples to do the touching for them, they retained the rights to knowledge about that which the natives touched. Mosses and the more-than-human world. They also repudiated any emotions and affects that anybody may have had towards the non-human. A plant became an object to be scrutinized. A moss, a carpet to be scraped and examined. You touch moss to bring it home and look at its structure under your university's new microscope. You touch moss, and yet you do not touch moss. Touching mosses, I did not feel at one with nature. I felt severed. This is not pure touch. No return to an unadulterated relationship with nature. No moss time. Between my fingertips and the sporophytes of a moss bed exists centuries of exploitation and extraction, and behind them human hands and the all-too-human touch. While working on this essay, I regularly visited an ash tree near my house. On its trunk, two types of mosses had begun to grow, common striated feather moss and Atrichum undulatum, a moss species with star-shaped leaves. I touched them every other day, but I didn't know what to think or say about them. I wanted moss to tell me its story, quiet, humble and peaceful, it said nothing. Perhaps it is absurd, even fatuous, to contemplate if there is anything redemptive about touch. If touch itself, as an intersubjective sense of perception, has become corrupt, where does that leave our forever touching bodies and selves? I want to push against this interpretation, because there is a touch beyond the history of touching too. The human capacity for touch and its existential, precarious, fleshy nature. The kind of touch that animated Delenius's days in Oxford despite everything. In a history of botany in England, the author Richard Pulteney in 1790 calls Delenius as a recluse described by a correspondent once as busy in painting fungi, busy touching nature, touch as a haunting reminder of the violence inherent in the body, touch that returns us to the past and its rugged terrain. As a kid, I used to play touch and go with my friends, the whole premise of which is that one person chases everybody else in an attempt to touch them. 
you had to tread the fine line between running with full force towards your friends and hurting them with your eager hand. It wasn't easy and we sustained a few injuries, but we also came up with a solution. Your touch counts only if it doesn't hurt anybody. Touch as a cautious hand. The fleshiness of touch bears us to the other, human and non-human, but also ourselves. The act of touching constitutes the perceived and the perceiver, proposes Merleau-Ponty. In touching the non-human, I'm thrown into the world over and again, and each time I must reintegrate myself as what I was before touching. In this continuous operation of disintegration and reintegration, there is a generative moment where I'm not certain who I am. Neither past me nor future me. Am I human? Am I a part of this world? Can I change? If in the act of touching nature, I'm not practicing guileless nature connectedness, but a complicitous, historical and also utopian touch, perhaps touch can be reconceptualized as a complex, layered and resilient sense perception. Perhaps it is the other way around. Not touch itself as a deliverance of one-dimensional, immediate experience, but what we, our history and present, have engineered it to be. Perhaps the apparent superficiality of touch is the fiction. The histories of human relationships with the non-human may have whitewashed and pigeonholed touch and its potential for radical reciprocity and for reckoning with the past and the present. I wonder if I can cultivate and harness touch, not as a cure for my estrangement from the non-human world, but as an open-hearted exposure to that world and ours. Touch from the old French touche, a blow or even an attack. Touch as a prizing open. Just before spring, I went for a walk in the woods more logs had fallen, glittering wood moss. A moss species with red stems and feathery leaves shimmered on the forest floor. I was reminded of the poem Wild Garlic by Sean Hewitt, in which he writes, The world is dark, but the wood is full of stars. With no moon in sight and an overcast sky, the walk back home was melancholy. I pulled out my keys from my jacket and they fell on the ground. Under the streetlight, a silver-green moss, Brium Argentium, shone out, cradling my keys. Moss is Earth's memory living at my doorstep. I must welcome it inside. I must touch it and let it undo me. Thanks again for listening to The Guardian Long Read. That was The Many Meanings of Moss by Nikita Azad. Read by Ramit Rowley and produced by Jessica Beck. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. 
For more Guardian long reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read or find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud forward slash theguardianlongread. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before Shopify, were you wondering where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com listen. Shopify.com listen.